You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, my name's Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here at Free City. And I want to quickly make you aware of a couple things. Next Sunday evening, August 2nd, we will all gather together as one group at First Southern Baptist Church here in Lawrence. That's on West 6th Street. And we'll be meeting outside for a worship gathering in their parking lot at 6.30 p.m. We, we chose this format for multiple reasons, but primarily because it seemed to be the most inclusive opportunity for us to gather back as one body to worship the Triune God. And so for that Sunday, we... We're going to have kids, everyone in one place, and, and we're asking you to, you probably want to bring a bottle of water, you want a lawn chair or a blanket, something of that nature. And, and really this week I could implore you to this, like pray that it would not be 1 million percent humidity, <laughs> maybe that it would be cooler, but we'll be outside. And then the following week, August 9th, we will scatter from the large gathering back into Sunday morning in our house churches for worship. And, and so this will just be back to the, the video sermon like you're watching right now and liturgy that we've become used to. And, and so we're going to step into the fall in a, in a type of rhythm where we're going kind of back and forth between the two. But there may be some specifics that kind of shift around in, in what the order to those things are and, and what that kind of sequence is. But Hey, be watching social media, be watching on Realm, and, and we'll keep you updated uh, to the best of our abilities as those things unfold. Um, but here, here's kind of the thing, man, I, I do hope that in this season, you have kind of gained this, that the church is not just simply a, a place. It's not just a building where we come and absorb but it's a, it's a gathering of a people, a people who are transformed by the gospel of Jesus, who worship the risen Savior, Savior and, and who bear with one another. And so if you've been in a house church with like just you and one other individual, or, or if you've been in a house church with like 12 other people, I, I hope that the Spirit of God has given you eyes to see more clearly what God has done through Jesus Christ on your behalf. And if this season's been like extremely tumultuous, if you've kind of been like gritting your teeth to get through it, then I urge you, lean into community. Allow the people around you to stand with you and bear your burdens as they point you to Jesus. Today, we're coming to a close in our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we spent literally months walking through this letter and, and examining each part. And as we've looked at Ephesians, we've considered what God has done for us in Jesus, saving us to himself and welcoming us into giving us a family. That's the church. And we've looked at how we, as recipients of this reality, are to live. It's how the gospel news is to permeate every part of our life. And so today, we'll be looking at Ephesians 6, 14 through the end, through verse 24. And as we're in our second week talking about spiritual warfare, and it's our final week in the letter. So last week, we learned that we have a real enemy, the devil, Satan. 
And the scriptures speak about Satan, saying that he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I want to begin with this. Like, even as we just think of that, that heading of spiritual warfare, here's what you need to know. Life, this is war. We as God's people, here's the thing about us. We absolutely enrage Satan. Why? Well, simply because you bear the image of God. So you see, as, as followers of Jesus, we remind Satan of Jesus, and this makes him furious. And in the reflection of Christ, Satan is reminded of his place. And he's also reminded of the reality that his kingdom has been overthrown, that his time is short. And with each lip that professes the commencement of the new eternal kingdom, Satan is reminded of his defeat. In his death and resurrection, Jesus struck Satan once and for all. And Satan has been bound. His power is no match for the king of kings. But it is a battle. However, we need to know, and we must remember this, that it's not a battle that's like a tug of war with Jesus. Like, Jesus is king, forget not. But because of this, because of the new kingdom, Satan is seething with anger and hatred toward Christ and his bride, the church, us. The Apostle Paul, he knows this, and he writes to us, in Ephesians 10, talked this last week, and he starts by saying this, finally be strong. And this is not like a, a get out there and, and flex or pull yourself up by your bootstraps on your own strength. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Find your strength from the reservoir of God's might, namely Jesus. And then he tells us what this strength looks like. If we look at verse 11 of, of chapter 6, it says, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. If you and I are going to stand against the schemes of the devil, as Paul implores, it's not going to come on our own efforts. Last week, Casey talked about temptation and accusation. And so think about when you face these things in your own life. Like, how do you typically fare in battle when you face these on your own? I would guess, like, personal experience probably is similar to yours, that you, you may hold up for a bit, like perhaps even a season, but when left to your own defense or your own will, you won't last in the war. And here's why. Your enemy has been after your destruction since before he knew your name. Like, here's what's going on. He's taken notes on your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and, and before that and before that and before that, so on and so forth. He has your calling card. He sees the ins and outs of what you might be susceptible to. Your efforts to stand will not come from trying harder or white-knuckling or whatever. The only way to stand against the schemes of the devil is to be covered, to be clothed by another. To, as verse 11 says, to put on the armor 
of God. And this is good news for us in this. Jesus offers us this armor freely. Now, I want to make a mention of this. Paul is not using this language for armor, for for some like kind of dramatic effect. He doesn't use this imagery to throw like every church's kids ministry a bone to make an easy coloring sheet. He speaks of armor because there's real armor and we are to put it on to fight the real enemy. This also was mentioned last week that we can make too much or too little of sin. Too much would be excusing ourselves the responsibility of the sins that we commit. I actually believe that that for our family, for our church, for probably us here, we're actually in danger of making too little of spiritual warfare. We distance ourselves from demonic schemes. After all, we are the ones who value education, right? So we work out our mental capacity so that, that maybe we're too smart to be duped into Satan's schemes, you think. But here's the thing. Satan would love nothing more than for you to have your senses dulled to what he's doing. He actually longs for you to put down the shield and to catch you defenseless. Consider the last four months of your life. As news about the pandemic began to hit, I had countless conversations with people about kind of personal plans for the disrupted season. I heard so many saying that they were like, relieved to no longer have a commute to work, kind of relieved that basketball was canceled because they couldn't watch TV, that they had to stay home, they couldn't go out to eat all the time, the list goes on. And in my city group specifically, Zoom meetings were kind of peppered with these like pandemic resolutions, all of us stating how we wanted to see God move in our lives during the disrupted time. Conversations were built around like picking up the proverbial shield, although we never called it that. And this wasn't just like in our church. These conversations seemed to surface with everyone that I spoke with. And lately, specifically this week, in accordance with this text, I've I've been thinking, man, I wonder what true inventory of our lives would, would look like if we just said, what's going on now? If we... If we were to kind of recount our desires back to March and weigh them with current realities, what would be our discovery? How many of the good and and holy desires have we seen actually come to fruition? Here's what I expect. Like, honestly, I bet the initial fights were pretty strong. The first weeks and, and perhaps even month, maybe halfway through, maybe longer, I don't know. But societal shutdowns, have been perpetuated by the pandemic. And I bet if we were to kind of visualize the the data, it would show like a a huge fall off. And and there's like kind of two places that I was just thinking about that I bet we see a fall off. One as stimulus checks came in, and then again as news began to clarify that we weren't getting out of this anytime soon. And I mindfully mentioned both of those markers in the timeline, just as two examples to to talk about how Satan loves to trap. Both of these things kind of point to and center on dependence. So think about it, money. And you wanna grow in dependence upon God. You, You go to war against the things that capture your thoughts. You read the Bible more, perhaps you start your day with it, you pray more, you set limits on your social media apps. You begin to realize 
in the midst of this pandemic, how much money you're saving because fast food shut down and you can't go out to eat. But then you wake up one morning to some extra funds in your bank account, thanks to the government. And throughout the next couple of days, the ads on social media that you've overlooked for weeks now begin to catch your attention. You now click on them. Your phone alerts you in a few minutes that you're nearing your time limit on said app. And what do you do? Dismiss. You've got extra funds. Why not have some extra fun, right? So you put your guard down and one purchase leads to another. And soon you've squandered the entire stimulus check. And then you give yourself a, a buy because this was free money after all. You didn't work for it. So you're not really being a bad steward, right? But, but the thing that was not considered with each purchase is that you've flirted with finding satisfaction in stuff and things, dependence upon stuff. You laid down the armor and temptation has hit you where you left yourself exposed and vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. And then secondly, I, I would just say worry. I was texting back and forth with my mom a couple weeks ago, and, and in the thread she asked how I was doing. And of course, I initially started to type out the like, I'm good, you know, half truth, saves myself from any kind of real evaluation or lengthy text. But as I began to type about three letters in, I realized I'm not good. Her inquiry sparked an honest assessment and consideration. And in in that, I, I felt a cloud of worry begin to settle in. I don't think it just appeared because she asked. I think it was already there. I was just unaware of it. Now, in that moment, I actually believe her, her simple question was spirit-led because of, of where it led me after that. I was encouraged to consider and evaluate what I had been giving myself to believe in. But in examination, I realized... I, I had kind of been idly allowing Satan to stoke this fire of worry in my soul. And I say soul because it, it wasn't like readily accessible in the Rolodex of my mind. It, it wasn't a, a thought that I was carrying. It was like deeper down in that. And, and the voice of worry in me was saying something like, hey, things aren't supposed to be going this way. They're, they're actually getting quite uncomfortable. This isn't how I envisioned life in this moment. What if God's messing things up? This coming at the tail end, or I guess in the middle of a season, it's honestly been pretty life-giving. Like given the circumstances, I've, I've found deep communion with God, with my family, with my wife and kids. I've, I've been drawn to pray bigger things for my family, bigger things for my friends and for our church but all the while with an understanding that these pre pandemic precautions would, would end and we'd resume some life of, of previous normalcy. We were headed into the phase out toward reopening the state of Kansas and Lawrence, and I had to exhale and I was ready to coast only to hear just like the rest of you that we'd be staying in phase three. This may seem insignificant, but like, I explain that to paint a picture that we've got to be on guard against Satan and his schemes. Spiritual warfare is the everyday business of the believer. And I say everyday business realizing that that could downplay the fact that 
spiritual warfare is in fact warfare, but I say everyday business, hoping to normalize our understanding that spiritual warfare and the life for the believer are not like two separate things. They're inseparable. We walk into both at the same time. We've got to be on guard. So as we get in today's text, here's the main idea that we're going to go with. The main point is that to endure life, and when I say life, I mean spiritual warfare as a normal part of life. I want you to just consider that as part of it. We need to realize that. To endure life, we must stand firm together in the truth of the gospel. To endure life, we must stand firm together in the truth of the gospel. And so as we look at today's text, we're going to ask just three simple questions, and it should go pretty quick, but here's the three questions. What do we have? Why do we have it? And how do we use it? So let's get to it. What do we have? Look at verse 14, starting in verse 14. It says this, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. If you grew up in church, the chances are that you've had a few experiences in Sunday school laying out kind of a a soldier on a felt board. And maybe it had like the words truth and, and righteousness in place of his war garb. Or perhaps you fought with your friends over who got to dress up as the Roman officer. Chances are you you maybe did those things, maybe you didn't, but if you did those things, you, you may have exited those classrooms thinking that this was an exercise that you did, a craft that you did that, that was really in place to, to tell you that you need to lead a more virtuous life. But if we consider verse 11 of chapter 6, we realize that these aren't merely virtues that Paul has metaphorically connected to armor. He says this in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's not that we put on this armor to become something more, like some evolved or stronger version, enough, you know, strong enough to, to fight Satan. Putting on the armor is not about us setting out to to pick a fight with the devil. It's about us standing in the victory of our King, Jesus. So it's not that you muster up as much righteousness or or truth as you can. It's about you putting on the reality of the gospel, internalizing it in a way that your heart, your, your being becomes knit to the gospel message. This is the armor of God. When you no longer consider righteousness as a thing to be grasped because it's the right thing, but you operate and live as a righteous person. To endure this life, we must stand firm together in the truth of the gospel. And what do we have to endure that? We've been given the armor of God. We could spend weeks looking at each piece of armor, giving, really, we could give each its own 
sermon, but instead we're going to just quickly examine each piece. So look at the pieces of armor described. Verse 14, we have the belt of truth, having fastened the belt of truth. For us, the, the picture of a belt in this fashion may be a bit lost. For the Roman soldier, like the belt refers to, to kind of an, an apron-like piece that was under his armor and, and protected the thighs of the soldier while also holding the rest of his armor together. It's the foundational element of the uniform. So too is truth the bedrock for us. As we buckle on the belt of Christ's armor, we live in and by his truth and speak his truth, displaying the characteristics of our victorious king. There's two ways in which Satan often lies to us. He speaks to us lies about God, about his goodness or, or his power, what he's able to do. And then he often lies to us about ourselves, who we are, where our identity lies, how we are in regard with to Christ, or, or even perhaps what type of power or authority we're given. As we put on this belt, we trust in the truth of the gospel, and we undo the lies of the devil. And second, we see the breastplate of righteousness. This is still in verse 14. But in, in Isaiah 59, 17, we have a, a promised Savior who, as it says, put on righteousness as a breastplate. This is the truth of the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life on our behalf. We wear the breastplate of righteousness when we trust that Jesus is righteousness is what seals us for eternity and protects us from Satan's blows. Then we have the shoes of the gospel. Verse 15. And shoes, think about the importance of shoes. And think about just summer versus winter and how those things are different. You wear different types of shoes for different activities. Paul is basically saying believers should always be ready prepared to share this gospel of peace. The peace in which the gospel produces in us prepares us for Satan's attacks. And in the midst of warfare, followers of Jesus proclaim spiritual peace. This is in season and out of season. The gospel is the message that leaves us always ready for battle. And we have the shield of faith. Proverbs 35 actually speaks of God, and it says that he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This is the picture we should see, like not a, a kind of small shield where you're having to deflect and, and really work to deflect things, but a large shield that covers you completely. Your whole body is covered by And what this shield does is extinguishes, extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. Think of these flaming darts as like sudden interruptions in your life. And we really should differentiate these from like just the sins of the flesh. So the sins in the flesh are, are a thing that are, are things that are more familiar and predictable. You live in them. But these arrows, these are ones that kind of seem to come out of nowhere. 
the immediate and, and intense feelings of, of guilt or doubt or despair. This shield grounds you in faith and belief in God's word and faith in who he is and what he says about himself. And his faith is active, extinguishing the enemy's attacks. And it's only through the power of the gospel that we have this type of protection. We have the helmet of salvation. And we talked about lies. And, and so thinking in that same line, Satan loves to sow seeds of doubt about God in our minds. He, he does this both subtly and violently. How many spiritual attacks are, are actually temptations to get you to do something so that once you do it, in the end, you begin to believe something? You see, Satan wants to use the work of your hands as a, a segue into uprooting the surety of your salvation. However, this helmet protects you. It manifests the words that, that Paul has penned in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where he says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Satan will do his best to erode your assurance of salvation. But your right standing does not hinge on your successes or your failures, but instead the finished work of Jesus. And then finally, we see the sword of the Spirit. This is the, the Word of God. And the word here used for the word is, is actually the, the is rhema, which is the message of God. So this gives us an understanding that our defense is, is not to just like internalize this gospel message, to, to know it in our minds, but we are to proclaim this message, the spoken message of God. We are to proclaim this message in response to Satan's temptations and accusations. This is our warfare. To endure this life, we must stand firm together in the truth of the gospel. So what do we have? We have the armor of God. And then we must put on this armor because it is what enables us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And that brings us to the second question. Why do we have it? And the answer is because we have a real enemy you cannot defeat on your own. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We talked this last week, so I will be kind of quick with this point. But if you're a Christian, Romans 8.29 says that God is always conforming you into the image of Jesus, his son, by the power of his spirit. And this is a promise that's not contingent on whether you like feel that happening or not. And so, you know what? I said this earlier. Satan absolutely hates this. You see, Satan, he could not by his own power keep Jesus in the grave. And so now he lashes out at you. He tempts you. He, he lures you to speak slanderously Words to divide instead of words of grace that, that could bring unity. He, he draws you to, 
twist the truth just a, a little so that your boss doesn't know you only work four hours instead of being expected eight. Satan encourages you to adjust the points of a story to, to move yourself into the center of it and, and make yourself the hero in turn trying to gain accolades. He tries to take you, you who bear the image of the God who is truth. And, and he tries to lead you in a way so that you find yourself drawn to lies. He wants you to sit by the way and, and ignore injustice. Or, or perhaps he wants you to begin the work of anti-racism in your life and in the world around you. To let you just get far enough along so that you begin to see yourself as good. And in turn, you're freed now from the burden of having to care at all. He delights to lead you down a pathway of, of kind of self-revelation so that you get stuck there and never do anything more. He deceitfully assures you that your addiction to substances or pornography is completely fine because it only affects you. He affirms your astronomical amount of screen time thumbing through social media because it, it came at the end of the day when everyone was in bed and you deserve it after all. This reality is readily visible. I mean, look at our, our homes, our, our cities, our states, our nation. Look at the world around you. Nation is divided against nation, person against person. We as a people have begun to, to overlook verse 12 of chapter 6, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but that the wrestle against, is against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over the present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We've forgotten this truth, and here's the thing. Satan has labored to that end to make it happen. Friends, you've been given the armor of God because you have a real enemy. And he is constantly working to derail the work of God in your life. And he is no fool. He knows more fully than anyone else that Jesus is returning. Believe me, he, he knows this. He suffered a skull-crushing blow to the head from the king. He knows that his time is short, and he knows that he's on a chain. However, on that chain, he's crafty. He spends day and night scheming to keep blinders on those who have not seen the light and to deceive believers and destroy their faith. So friends, don't fall into the trap of believing that the enemy is not real. And moreover, don't be fooled into believing that you can take him on yourself, on your own accord. You have one who fought on your behalf and who gives you his armor and his power to stand firm. So to en endure this life, we've got to stand firm together in the power and the truth of the gospel. So we looked at why, what do we have? We have the armor of God, and why do we have it? Because we have a real enemy that we cannot defeat on our own. So finally, let's look at how we use it. This is through prayer and proclamation. Look at verse 18. 
It says this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Prayer, Paul says, is to permeate every part of the Christian. This is no like standalone or tack on at the end thing. Prayer is the way in which we internalize and embody this armor. It's the way the armor becomes a part of us. To say it another way, it's the way that the gospel message takes root in our life. Look at the beginning of verse 18. It says, praying at all times. And so from that, I think we could actually look back at the preceding verses and and see this as like prayer laced into everything that Paul has previously mentioned. So if we were to back up, we might read, pray as you fasten the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness while praying. Take up the shield of faith as you pray. And we do this all with all prayer and supplication so that we naturally, instinctually begin to operate as people transformed by the power of the gospel. So we're now alive to the fact that we have a real enemy, but also to the reality that we've been given a defense. So as Satan feeds you lies, he tells you that there's no way that God could possibly love you because of your track record. You no longer just know it in your head that God loves you. You actually begin to exist as a loved person. Do you see that differentiation? Like when you know something to be true versus when you actually live as if it were true, this is the spiritual work of prayer that we begin to experientially know the reality of the gospel. That in Christ, you've been made new. And in Christ, your eternal death was put to death, that he was raised and and you too were raised with him. And then furthermore, that you will appear with him in glory as Colossians 3 promises. What's true of Christ is true of us. We actually get to participate in life with him through his spirit. And it's when we internalize this reality, when we embody this truth, that we're able to endure life. We're able to stand firm. But here's the thing. It's not just an internalization to absorb and consider ourselves protected and safe and stop there. There seems to be kind of an outward movement. Look again at verse 18 and 19 as Paul draws us out of this like possible individualistic view. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. And then he says this, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul instructs us not only to pray ourselves, but, but to pray for other believers, including him. And it seems in verse 19 that he believes that these prayers actually work to give clarity and courage as he proclaim the gospel. 
So these, these prayers fuel proclamation. So friends, if we're to stand firm in this life, if we are to endure, we've got to see that, that we're not in this war alone. We've been given the armor of God, but furthermore, we've also been drawn into the army of God where we pray for one another and, and we bear burdens as we proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus to one another and to the world. And Paul exemplifies this as he writes and, and he prays for the church at Ephesus. He also invites them to intercede on his behalf and, and in doing these things, he's welcoming them in to serve him as well. He's striving for unity in the church. In closing, let's look at verse 21 through the end. It says this, so, so that you also may know how I'm doing, how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So we're going to hit this really quick. This could be, the ending could be another sermon as well. But Paul instructs them how to live. And then he follows in, in living in that way. He says, I'm going to send you Tychicus to encourage your hearts. He's exemplifying that you need the body. You're not in this alone. So I'm going to send a brother who's going to come and he's going to encourage you in the very place that you need strength. And then Paul turns in and he blesses them. He says this in verse 23, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul closes and, and his heart is stirred for the Ephesians. He wants them to be filled with the fullness of God so that their lives might, be, might reflect him and, and so they may be able to to endure, that they may be able to stand firm. And so in closing, like, how might life be different if we realized that, that we put on the armor of God because we have a real enemy that we can't defeat on our own, but also that the battle is waged through prayer and proclamation of the gospel of Christ. I think that by the power of the Spirit, we actually would begin to endure life. I think we would stand firm in our battles with Satan, no longer on our own strength, but in Christ's victory. We'd realize that we're not alone because we'd hear our brothers and sisters proclaiming the battle cry of the gospel. And in the midst of that, we'd be built up in our inner being because God is responding to the prayers of his people on our behalf. So church, to endure this life, we must stand firm together in the truth of the gospel. Pray with me. Jesus, do elevate this truth and this reality in our lives. Would it be true of us that, that we would be a, a people so knit together and so connected that, that we're constantly speaking gospel truths to one another, constantly praying for one another and lifting each other up? But how might our lives look different 
How might we begin to to weather seasons of, of doubt and despair? Lord, save us from standing on our own. Allow us to understand what you have won us through the power of your gospel in Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. And would that reality transcend into our life? Would it form how we see others and, and how we conduct life ourselves? That we would no longer see ourselves as the, the leader of our soul, but, but we would be led by your spirit. So move in power in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we'll see you next Sunday night at 6.30 First Southern Baptist Church. Looking forward to it.